Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Eric Bowen is the COO for Babel Street, a provider of advanced multilingual search and analytics software solutions. He's been with the company since 2013 in various operational roles. Prior to Babel Street, he was formerly a Central Intelligence Agency operations officer, engaged in human intelligence operations in numerous and diverse environments, working with areas of conflict and instability. He's also a former U.S. Marine officer with experience leading dozens of personnel managing logistical payloads and implementing programs. Babel Street currently serves many of the world's leading brands in financial services, transportation, entertainment, sports, higher education, hospitality, and government. And Eric plays a key role in company initiatives. Eric is an alumni of the United States Naval Academy with a degree from the Huff Graduate School of Business at the University of Florida. Um, Eric, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Cameron, I am so happy to be here. I'm really honored. Thank you for having me. No, this is really cool. It's funny because we're, um, I don't know if you're familiar, we started a, a group called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands. And I've got our, um, our group showing up in three hours for the January event. So I'm, I'm kind of in this one mode of like getting ready to talk to all these new people and a bunch of the existing members. And, and then I see your bio. I'm like, we don't have anybody in the COO Alliance who's come out of the CIA and come out of this like deep military background. So I'm really intrigued to, um, to kind of learn some of your background. So why don't you tell us, give us a real brief helicopter overview of what Babel Street is. Because um, even though I read it in the bio, I don't think it really explains it. So kind of give us the, the rough description and then tell us, I guess, how you got involved in the organization and how you rose into the COO role. That would be great. Um, so again, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, as you noted, Babel Street is a software company. We have a text analytics focus. Um, we really work to enable clients to analyze both contextually and visually global sources of multilingual data as they seek kind of actionable signals in real time. And so in essence, what we're really trying to do is translate extant data into knowledge that customers can use. Um, and I think that the gap that our CEO and founder saw initially was, and again, going back six, seven, eight years, was that internet data in the form of blogs, forums, social media, the number of URLs that was being created, all those were being generated at heretofore sort of unprecedented and alarmingly exponential rates. But because of the volume of the data and the velocity that it's coming at organizations and the difficulty using it techniques at the time to sort of uh, look for the, the needles in the haystack, that kind of data was largely ignored um, and we posited that it should have been an integral component of the way that organization thinks about its situational awareness. Another critical problem that we were seeing was linguistics. So, you know, estimates put uh, internet content roughly at 50% in languages other than English. Um, and so it's hard to ignore that, but it's also difficult for someone who's not multilingual um, organically to be able to sort through that kind of data. And so one of the problems we sent out to solve was to sort of build this multilingual thesaurus such that our engine understands that uh, United States correlates to USA, correlates to Estados Unidos in Spanish, or in Russian, and so on. And so we think that the value here is extraordinary gains in efficiency, as well as kind of substantial improvements in the quality of the data that comes into, to, say, an analyst's hands, 
um, and it doesn't require a lot of copious additions to linguistic staff. Um, and I think in the end, we sort of, you know, that this value was born of bringing relevant and actionable data from disparate sets that are kind of unbound by language and format that help organizations optimize efficiency, improve the quality of the data they're analyzing, and enhance decision making. So, okay, so the way you're talking, you're a techie guy too, right? <laughs> I am the exact opposite of that. Are I, you? I have no never kidding. written a line of code in my life. Um, you know, I uh, as I get into my bio a little bit later, I, I'll just mention now that I have authored the majority of our responses to things like RFPs and RFIs, and you okay. know, when you do that kind of writing, you start to to get an intimacy with the offering sure. and be able to talk about it on on a whole bunch of levels. So I've benefited okay, so greatly. So this is you're you're clearly marketing into the enterprise level and to like government. Give us a can you give us a layman's view of a um I guess a case study like a simple case study of, of how you're taking this data and what people would be doing with it or companies are doing with it. Yeah, like we absolutely. took we took X and we did Y. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just as a couple of quick examples, um, in 2017, an organization that's called the uh, National Center for Spectator Sports Safety and Security goes by the acronym of NCS4 and focuses on exactly what it sounds like, had, had bestowed on us um, their Golden Eagle Award for work that we did um, in venue management and safety for spectators associated with Super Bowl 49 in Phoenix. Uh, mm -hmm. And so this sort of venue management uh, and, and brand management is an important use case that a, a lot of our customers look to us for. Um, we've had organizations that have, have used the text-based capability that we have um, to track uh, global disease pandemic signals. Um, it's really difficult to get fidelity data on where diseases are cropping up. I mean, there's obviously a medical signal side to that, but text-based sides where people were reporting in a blog or in social media, it says, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of cases of X, Y, or Z in this location. Um, that's the kind of thing they're, they're looking for there, understanding breaking news. So that, that, wow. there's a couple of uh, use cases. When you, those are super cool stuff. When you, what, what role did you come into the organization doing? Um, so, you know, I came into the organization when we were really, really young. Um, in fact, when I joined, I was the number three employee and we had about six people. Um, you know, I, uh, I was coming from the public sector and I uh, had a connection to our CEO from a, from a long time ago. We had, we had spent time in school together um, and over the years we had kind of reconnected and we had talked a little bit about what role I might play if I decided I was going to leave the public sector. And, you know, I think public sector employees like, my, like myself, you know, there's a certain set of skills that, you know, they bring to the table. But in terms of the X's and O's of, you know, of, of business management, there's definitely a gap that needs to be learned. And, and so luckily for me, and, and certainly a testament to our CEO's risk tolerance, you know, I came on and, and, you know, at the very early stages, you know, aside from the CEO title, you know, most of our titles were really sort of paper tigers. We were all kind of doing it all and taking out, you know, yeah. carrying our own water, taking out the trash. Right. And over time, we specialized a little bit. And that's really where I got my, my, my start on the customer facing side. Um, you know, that gave me a whole bunch of at bats uh, in front of customers to kind of cut my teeth. And, you know, I eventually took on the role of trying to, to manage our first enterprise rollout. And um, that customer sort of tripled its commitment to us uh, over a year period, which was, which, was, which was a great accomplishment for the company. And, and um, you know, it was moving through that progression of really understanding the customer, um, working on our uh, written product side, 
um, that uh, sort of moved me towards the COO role, uh, the CEO and the president who also held the role of COO at the time were kind enough to kind of move me into a chief of staff role for about nine months to, to sort of allow me to look at the business in a more centralized fashion. And then eventually we, we sort of freed our president up to, to take on some, some other uh, actions for the company and put me in the role of COO to kind of manage the day-to-day aspect of it. It's cool. It's funny. You just mentioned a term chief of staff and it's a term that I've been hearing it a fair amount recently, but a lot of people aren't even aware. What, what would you guys, or how would you qualify or define chief of staff role? Well, listen, I, I, I mean, I've seen the chief of staff employed in a number of ways, both in my time in the, in the armed forces and my time at CIA. You know, I think, you know, from a business perspective and I to go back to this, 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 uh, this, this word again, but you know, a little bit of a paper tiger. I think that I was sort of a utility player, you know, at the, at the central component of the company, you know, to kind of fill in the gaps and, and pick up the footballs. You know, our, our, our president and COO at the time was just a really, really, really busy guy. Um, and when sort of special projects came up that, that he had a hard time kind of focusing on himself, then I kind of got the, uh, the, the role of managing that. And at the same time, I was also trying to work with the CEO to kind of um, improve the quality of our communication channels with him. Um, and, I, and I think if you're looking at this, the chief of staff role in a classic sense, you know, that's really what the chief of staff is doing. It's trying to help this, the CEO manage the, the, the communications that are coming his way and that, he's, that he or she is pushing out um, to, to the direct reports. Interesting. Now, you, you mentioned um, some of the skills that you're going to have to learn along the way. So I'm curious, what skills do you think you brought into, into uh, Babel then from the military or from the public sector? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I have a couple of takeaways from the Marine Corps that I've always kind of stuck with me, and it's really two maxims and a, and a story about three colonels. So I'll just I'll just tell you those real quick, and then I can talk a little bit about my some of my agency um, some of my agency takeaways. But um, you know, my first maxim is if you expect it, inspect it, and my second is if it can be misunderstood, it will be. Hmm. So going. Going back to that first one, um, you know, young officers would be given this rubric to, to issue an order for some kind of operational undertaking. And it was a six-letter sort of uh, acronym, BAMSIS, begin planning, arrange reconnaissance, make reconnaissance, complete the order, issue the order, and then supervise. And so the lesson that always came out of these exercises is that you would task somebody with doing something and then you'd never really follow up on it. And at the very end, it was clear that you never really followed up on it. You just sort of assumed it got done. And the instructor mm-hmm. would say something to the effect of, you know, don't forget the S in BAMSIS uh, for supervise. And so, you know, I've always kind of stuck with me. Um, I think that we all need a little check on what we're doing. And I don't think that supervising means that you're telling people how to do their work. In fact, I think that you can really show um, a lot about how much you care about the task by sort of checking in on it. So, yeah. um, you know, and then I think my, my, my last thing from the Marine Corps that I would add is, is uh, you know, the Marine Corps is really big on historical studies. And so I remember, you know, being forced to read this passage but that was written by a European general in the early 20th century. And he was opining on how he would lead his three colonels, you know, his direct reports. And, you know, one kind of needed no additional guidance and one, you know, required a lot of very uh, sort of specific instructions. And one was kind of in the middle but needed a little more rapport building and emotional support. And, you know, my takeaway from that, and I'm, bas- I'm bastardizing it a little bit, by the way, but, you know, I, my takeaway from that was always that, you know, we need to really thoughtfully assess the manner in which, you know, we're engaging with various people um, and to bring more tools into our own toolkit. And I think that relates to the, to the way we interact with direct reports, colleagues, partners, customers, investors. And so that sort of thoughtfulness about, um, 
uh, about how we engage to optimize communication is, is, is a big takeaway from my time in the service. I think, you know, it's a couple, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. This is great. Yeah, a couple of takeaways from my time at the agency is really the power of listening. Um, and I think that translates well to a lot of the modern writing that goes on for, for, for business management. I mean, there's plenty of sales books out there that, that extol the idea of spending 30% of the time talking and 70% listening. And I think in, in sort of human operations, we're taught that we need to let people tell their story. Um, it's likewise really important to recapitulate and establish next actions. And I think that any of us who have ever spent any time in a, in a meeting with more than just a handful of folks can, can, um, can, can so that resonates with us. Um, I think the power of thank you, you know, just a, a couple of months ago, I had a colleague approach me after a meeting um, and she had, had sort of said, hey, I wanted to thank you for, for just taking some, some time to recognize me and thanking me for what I was doing. And she had kind of come to, you know, a, a certain milestone in what she was working on. And, you know, I didn't do that to score any points with her. And it certainly wasn't disingenuous. I think that I had put myself in her shoes and thought about how far along she had gotten. And, and I just figured I would want someone from the executive team when I reached that milestone to thank me. And I think when we move at the pace of business, um, it's really easy to, to, to sort of let something like that go, even if, you know, especially from the corporate level, maybe, you know, the accomplishment seems a little pedestrian, but it wasn't pedestrian to the person who did it. Um, and so saying, saying thank you, I think goes a long way. And then finally, you know, uh, and I'm sure this sort of makes sense given where I came from, but the, just the supreme importance of being adaptable and flexible and, and highly uncertain situations. You know, I certainly don't want to have anyone on the team who um, just spends a lot of time in, in sort of querulous mode or, um, you know, is sort of unable to adapt when the circumstances change. Because that's really the only guarantee is that the circumstances are going to change. Got it. Okay. You, um, yeah, you brought some good skill set in. What about, what about the learning along the way? You kind of mentioned that, um, you know, there's a gap between the, the stuff, the skill set, I guess, you brought from the public sector and the skills you needed in the private sector or the entrepreneurial world. What skills have you had to continue to hone with yourself then along the way? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the uh, the the importance of of just understanding some basic you know business fundamentals. I mean, uh, I, I probably couldn't have told you the difference between net thirty and net sixty payment terms um, the day that I walked into Battle Street. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think I think a lot of the wickets about um, you know the uh, I mean some of it was just sort of blocking tackling sort of you know, understanding how we determine margins and, and how we reach toward a goal of certain margins. And, and um, you know, I think trying to really think through um, a sales strategy so that, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about the end in mind and sort of working backwards. Um, I think in our sort of data, an, you know, our data analytics world, there's just a lot of shiny objects out there. Um, and it's easy to get distracted by something that seems like it's really cool. And, and um, we just have to really sort of wrap ourselves back to whether or not it's part of our core vision and whether or not it's sort of aligned with the kind of revenue generating activity that really works for us. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, I, I spent an enormous amount of time kind of listening to members of our executive team whose virtues I would sort of extol on any stage. Um, you know, our, our general counsel is best in class, you know, our product team uh, and our head of product and our, you know, chief strategy officer, revenue officer, CFO and CTO. I mean, these guys are just amazing. And I break out the notebook whenever they talk. You know, I would add that, you know, our, our CEO and, and, our, and our current president, I just can't say enough about these guys. I mean, when you watch them and the business acumen they have, just in terms of thinking about how we're going to negotiate certain deals and, you know, how we're going to approach certain problems, the equanimity that they've showed in stressful and challenging times. 
Um, and then the ability to sort of, you know, with dexterity and effectiveness, communicate with people in a one-on-one -on -one setting in a really compassionate and powerful way. And at the same time, stand in front of the company um, and be just as authentic. Um, I think when you, when you watch a pair of guys like, like what I had, um, you know, that I've had the opportunity to observe, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, positive ability to sort of fill in the gap. And I think the last part of that is going to work on my MBA made a big difference for me. I mean, I sort of approached it late in life and, and uh, you know, I can remember how much older I felt than most of my contemporaries in the room there. But um, I really felt like a lot of the core concentrations ranging from accounting to negotiating to marketing, it made a big difference for me. Hmm. Interesting. What do you, yeah, the, um, it's interesting that you would have gone back for your MBA as well. How many years did you go back? How many years after being in school did you go back for your MBA? Um, I went back uh, roughly 20 years later. Uh, wow. but I have this I have this vivid memory of sitting in there um, at the orientation and the uh, recruiting team is doing a profile on the class and, and he made the point that, you know, we actually have five Naval Academy graduates in here and, and uh, you know, class of uh, 2014, 2012, 2011, <laughs> 2009, <laughs> 1990, whatever. I certainly felt my, my age when I, when I walked in there, but um, you know, everybody uh, treated me just as kindly as they did each other. I can't say enough about uh, how good I thought that program was, and it made a big difference it's, for me. It's crazy. I just like I haven't thought back to college in forever, and I was I was on a university campus recently with one of my kids walking around, and they're looking at all these kids, and I'm like, these are children. Like these are children that are at university. What was like? How how did I even think I was an adult when I was at school? It was ridiculous. That, uh, there's um, so much. There's so much truth to that. Um, oh. it's, it's really unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. So you talked a little bit about vision and then some focus and distraction. So so how do you get on the same page as the CEO with vision? Um, how do you get the employees to be on the same page as the CEO with vision? Well, we have a number of sort of uh, weekly standups um, that you know we do maintain some fidelity to. Um, those are both with the CEO. Um, you know, we sort of do a, a group with a, a, a session with a larger management team, uh, and that's really the CEO's meeting. Um, so the notes are really for him to understand the decision points and and other important considerations that we have made going on in different you know components of the company. Um, we also have a little bit of a smaller group session on a weekly basis uh, with the CEO, and that's really the time for us to talk about kind of the non-standard things or, or bring him up to speed on something that had popped up that he just wasn't aware of. Um, and then, uh, we, you know, we do a, a, a regular, not quite weekly, but a, but a pretty regular session, you know, with the employees to, uh, to sort of keep them up to date, um, both on the business side and on the product side. You know, beyond those, uh, you know, I feel like the contemporaneous conversations are really important. Um, and so, you know, my CEO in particular sort of has a way about him that if there's something on his mind, he's got no compunction about picking up the phone. And if, if the stars align, sort of talking about it right then and there. Um, and, uh, you know, in my case in particular, I try to, to just allow for him to, to call me back or, or uh, stop by and see me if he's, if he's super busy. Um, but if I need something from them, then I'll just pick up the phone. And I think the freedom to approach it that way makes a big difference as well. That's interesting. Yeah. How do you and he stay in sync? What kind of do you have meeting rhythms to stay in sync or how do you and, and the CEO stay in sync? Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's really a process of, um, of, of, of hearing him out on, uh, his general guidance and then, uh, going into some sort of 
regular updating mode. Uh, some of that is sort of uh, temporally driven, you know, a, a regular update in the form of, of sort of like a, maybe like a weekly brief. Um, and then some of that is sort of based on, on the project or the initiative itself. And so really making sure that he remains up to speed. We do use email a lot for that, um, especially if, if he's on the move. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the importance of sort of keeping him abreast of what's going on uh, is, is considerable. Uh, I would say one of the things that I've sort of had, had to fix is just, you know, I think, you know, when you're not the CEO, your assumption is that, you know, the CEO is super busy and he probably doesn't want to be distracted with a whole bunch of things that are um, really not the, 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 the type of activity that he has to deal with on a daily basis. But in my case, at least in our CEO's case, I think the opposite is true. Um, I think that, you know, he's hungry for information. He wants to have a finger on the pulse of what's going on. And it's really my job to make sure that he gets it. So, um, I don't know if that makes sense. No, that works. Um, so talk about some of the focus and distraction. How do you keep yourself focused? How do you keep the team focused with, as Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, talked about working on the critical few versus the important many. We've got so much distraction just in the normal day-to-day, -day, plus in all of our competing priorities inside of a business, plus with our lives. Um, how do you keep people kind of focused then? How do you keep yourself focused? Well, that's really the magic question right there. Such a, such a good one. And I mean, I'm sure that it matters in every industry, but I think it makes a big difference in ours because as I said, you know, um, you know this, this sort of data analytics and data science world is really sort of amorphous, right? I mean, it, it's just not as easily to sort of conceive a product the way that it is to conceive what an automobile looks like or what a laptop computer looks like. Um, and so um, it is easy for people to get distracted when we think about new ideas. And, and you know, one of the great things that working about, about working at a company like ours is that everybody is so excited about the product that we all have so many ideas about new ways that could be applied and new things that we might consider doing to it. And we've really had to put some controls in place to make sure that we uh, take the input of that feedback um, and drive it into a program where we can sort of discern what's best for us. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so we have this sort of management of ideas on the, uh, on the product side, you know, I think on the business side and the customer facing side, the way that I personally try to spend a lot of time keeping us, um, you know, in line with the overall vision is, uh, and I know it sounds probably really elementary when it's going to come out of my mouth, but I'm a really, really, uh, strong sort of question asker. Um, my, the question of sort of how's it going or, or uh, something like that, I, I always issue um, because the natural offset for an answer like that is, um, yeah, it's going fine and that really doesn't tell me anything. And so um, I try to really work insightful questions that are going to prompt uh, my colleagues to sort of think a little bit about how this fits into the company's overall strategy. And I think that that helps to kind of um, uh, avoid some distractions. And then finally, mm. we actually have a week uh, a weekly stand-up meeting um, that we sort of affectionately call the uh, a go no go session. Um, and it's at that time where we sort of uh, evaluate uh, anything that um, is a little bit unusual that we just hadn't really seen before, and we sort of uh, you know debate the efficacy and make a determination based on consensus of whether or not we're going to move forward or whether or not we're going to we're going to sort of let something pass. So I think it ranges from, you know, really sort of process driven uh, methodologies to keep us on track. And then um, a, a few more that are just uh, sort of softer skills to, to help us keep going as well. Walk us, walk us through the go, no go and how that actually um, sets up, how you guys make those decisions. Yeah. So we have representatives from uh, various concentrations of the company that 
um, would be most impact if the company was to make a decision to to pursue a particular effort. And so we make sure that those representatives, uh, we have a charter for, for the meeting, and so there's a representative from those. And, and at this point, we've run it a number of times. Everybody sort of knows what their role is. Um, and then the key is really sort of feeding information to that group in advance. So that group has some time to deliberate on it. Um, we've definitely uh, um, worked a little bit more on short notice than I think we probably needed to in the past, but we're, we've improved on that a lot. Um, and then uh, uh, once everybody has sort of seen it and we've really whittled down what the decision point is, um, and th then uh, we, we sort of deliberate on it and we'll oftentimes have sort of the ideas champion uh, in the room to sort of promote the idea of why, you know, it, 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 it's going to help um, this person with portfolio that speaks to the overall corporate vision. Um, and then we deliberate on it in sort of a really, um, uh, I think, positive idea-driven way. Everybody gets a chance to say their piece. We don't interrupt each other. Nobody takes it uh, personally or offensive. And, and, you know, we sort of walk out of there and, and press on. That's cool. Yeah, you guys are doing it. Talk about a little bit about your direct reports. What, um, what business areas report to you and how do you try to support them? Yeah, so we're sort of matrixed in a way that uh, I've been able to kind of drive down uh, the number of direct reports I have. And, and in the past, having had, you know, upwards of 20 or 25 direct reports, that's a, that's a really refreshing change for me. Um, and so what I end up having is a lot of functional responsibility, but the administration of some of the direct reports goes in different directions. So for instance, our revenue team uh, has, a, uh, has a chief revenue officer and uh, sort of an organization, a hierarchy within that organization. Um, but uh, for the purposes of sort of driving sales strategy functionally, that's, that's, um, that's put over to me. Um, so sales operations is a big functionality. And, um, you know, this past year I, I, I hired a, a director for sales operations who's fantastic. And, you know, you know I, I've heard you speak on the podcast about the importance of hiring people that are smarter and better than you in certain areas. And, and that's been a huge help to me. And he's been, able, he's been able to sort of take on some of the transactional elements of doing that. Um, likewise, I have kind of a, a functional relationship with, uh, with our product team and trying to come up with some, you know, uh, sort of go to market strategy, uh, type of exercises as we, as we think about our, our, um, our, our innovation and roadmap. Uh, and then finally our customer experience team, uh, again, I don't have sort of a, a matrix that they're not reporting to me on the org chart, but you know, we have an overlap of functional responsibility that, you know, um, we need to interact with each other and and certain things that those guys have to be uh, responsible to me for. So, um, yeah, that, that's sort of the way we're matrixed, and, and it's worked really well uh, and allowed me to tackle a whole bunch of, of issues that just regularly come up in the in the day to day of, of running, you know, the day to day operations of the company. I mean, you know, property and insurance, and you know, uh, all manner of special projects and industry certifications and these sort of things. You know, all really require sort of an operations uh, uh, focus. Um, and end up taking up a lot of time. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, where where do you find that the um, the company is struggling, and not in a, a negative way, but in I think we all. I was talking to a CEO that I was coaching this morning, and he's 45. I said, you know, when you were five years old, 15 years old, 25, 35, 45, you were still the same guy, but you've evolved. So maybe I'm not saying struggling, but where is the company evolving right now? Where are you guys moving from? You know, being a 15 year old to a 25 year old, or a 25 year old to a 30 year old. No, I, I appreciate the question. I think that that we're we're really at an inflection point where you know we've you know uh, you know having been a startup just you know five years ago, we've sort of we sort of made it um, in in that respect. And so now it's really about you know it's about growth and and new ideas. 
And so I think the part that we struggle with, um, and it goes back a little bit to, to the conversation you and I had earlier about sort of the, the, the managing distractions is, is just the overwhelming sort of opportunities that sit out there. Um, and it's just so hard, so no, it's so hard to say no um, to certain things when in the early startup stages, you don't say no to anything um, because it's all about um, sort of catching on and, 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 and building, building customer bases and this sort of thing. Um, and I think the thing we struggle with is really, is really kind of managing the initiatives that, um, you know, initially seem really shiny and, and perhaps uh, uh, have sort of a, a, an elegant, glamorous feel to them but in the end really may not be the best initiatives that, that are sort of keeping with our long range vision. Um, and so, you know, if we struggle with anything, I think it's sometimes just saying no. Yeah, that's another one that just kept coming up today as well. And I was talking to a CEO and he was talking about the demands on his time and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I was like, dude, just say no, or just quit the, or <laughs> quit the organization you're in. He's part of the young president's organization. He's been there for like five years and, I'm like, then move on. Like, if you're not getting anything out of it, leave. Oh, I can't leave because of blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, you can. Like, it's a great organization. It's an amazing one. Like, I, most of my clients are in YPO, but at some point you graduate. It's like high school. You move from high school to college. At some point you move from YPO to something or you move from something into YPO. It doesn't, not a negative. It just, um, for him, that was his big struggle is saying no to a group. So how do you guys, how do you work with the team on saying no? How do you say no to competing priorities? How do you say no to, um, to decisions? How do you say no to investments? Yeah, I think that, that a lot of it goes back to sort of uh, uh, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't quite the right word, but sort of training and, and staff development. Um, and so, you know, as we, as we bring folks on um, and, you know, they're sort of moving their feet really quick to, to you know, to find their footing. Um, I think that one of the major growth areas we have is really sort of, you um, trying to, uh, a give them opportunities to, uh, you know, to learn from the lessons that those of us have been doing this for a while have really kind of already learned. Um, and so some of that is sort of, is sort of building ways for them to access that information. And some of that is a function of, of, of training people a little bit on, on what we've seen along the way. Um, and then I, I think that we've, we've also done, you know, sort of a nice job of, of, of hearing people out and taking ideas from within the company uh, and then uh, sort of leveraging those, those ideas to sort of get a, a better understanding of what people were seeing out there. Um, and then, you know, deciding if we need to make any strategic shifts based on what we're seeing um, or if we need to sort of um, – uh, to, to make sure that we, we, we really maintain fidelity to what we're doing and, and kind of spend some time on the, with the workforce trying to, trying to emphasize that. How, how old is your workforce? Do you guys run the kind of gamut in terms of age? Are you running a lot of Gen Y, Gen, or Gen X? Or? No, I think we do run the gamut. Uh, you know, I think we, we, we have a, a, you know, if we were to take sort of the bell curve, we'd, we'd, probably, we'd probably hit just about most of the age demographics that the modern workforce probably has. Um, you know, we, we, we definitely do have a lot of, a lot of young folks. Um, um, I mean, you know, everything from sort of a college age intern at various times to folks, to a handful of folks that, are, you know, this is their first or second job. Um, we have people that have sort of, um, you know, joined the company in, in mid-career. I don't know if their change necessarily as drastic as the one that, that I made, um, but, you know, they're definitely in mid-career and an inflection point to think about where they're going. Um, and then we have some who, you know, have seen it all, 
uh, and they just love being um, this uh, being around the energy around when we have, and we've been able to sort of benefit from their from their experience. So yeah, we we we're, we're sort of run the gamut, I think. That's cool. So the, the typical question is, you know, how are you working with Gen Y? And I, I don't really want to ask that question anymore. I'm getting tired of the answers. How do you work with the baby boomers? How do you actually get the and the, the the youngest baby boomer is 54 today and the oldest baby boomer is 76. So how are you getting that 55 to 70-ish year old to adopt technology? How are you getting them to um, work in a modern workforce? How are you getting them to understand that nine to five doesn't really matter? Yeah. How are you, how, how are you bringing them up to speed? Yeah, I mean, I don't. We don't have a we don't have a ton of employees in that, ingra- that demographic. You know, we do we do have a few, and I, I think that a lot of that sort of gets accomplished at the early stages of establishing you know the relationship um, where they're coming to work for us. And so you know, just like the the process of screening really for any employee as as we're, as we're seeking sort of a, a a fit for you know attitude and experience and skill sets. Um, I think we do the same here. It has been my experience that folks who, you know, if we just take the age aside for a second, we just sort of think about kind of a, a, a time and place and career, um, that someone who has spent 20 or 30 or years doing something um, and then uh, look going out and doing a second career. I mean, in, in my capacity, I've seen a lot of people from the public sector do this. They have retired from the U.S. government or they have retired from the U.S. Armed Forces and then they go out and they're sort of looking at what they want to do. Um, I think the, the, those that are most successful at a company like ours are really the ones who understand, you know, that point I talked about earlier that, you know, we may be a little specialized, but everybody sort of picks up the trash around here. Uh, and so we just don't have secretaries for everybody. And, and, you know, we really need everybody to, um, to, to approach this with sort of the same energy. Um, and, and we've had, uh, I think a lot of success by really spending time with folks as we consider bringing them on, um, and making sure that we sort of have a, a strong cultural fit in that, pers- in that, in, in that perspective. And it's been my experience that I, I, you know, we really haven't had to spend a lot of time with, with those guys and gals trying to motivate them to get up to speed, say with the technology that we're, we're in use, um, that they are fighting harder than some of the younger folks because they want to prove their own metal in that respect. They know it's, it's maybe not a strong suit that they grew up with. So it hasn't really been a, a huge challenge. And I think it speaks to, you know, making sure we get the right people. Yeah. So are you, are you biased <laughs> against baby boomers? Oh, no, not at all. I've had a lot of really good <laughs> experiences with, with some of the company. Um, I would just say that, um, you know, I, I, I suppose I've sort of, I, I think the transition is a little harder uh, for someone who, you know, left a previous career where they had a lot of, a lot of sort of uh, organic support in what they were doing. Um, you know, maybe they had like a secretary or a staff that sort of took care of maybe some of the more mundane tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, like I said, the folks I think that have been most successful for us have been the ones who, without even being told, sort of rolled their sleeves up and said, you know, I'm, I'm in. Let's talk, talk um, about something that kind of crosses all the demographics and its core values. Because I think you're hiring, you have to hire for that. And, and do they fit your core values, not aspire to live them? So what, what are your core values for your company today? And then how do you guys on the front end hire to that to match core values? Yeah, so um, I, I think that when we talk about core values, we, you know, we, we're, we're really talking about it from our perspective that number one, we don't let customers fail. And number two, that we're gonna know our customer's business. Number three, that we're gonna understand our own product and how it can, and it can positively impact customers. And that number four, we're gonna do good with what we have. 
Um, and so uh, I, I think that when, when, when we think of our values in, in that way, they're usually pretty self-evident and people can, can wrap their brains around that um, pretty easily. Um, you know, we do have a process when we're interviewing folks. You know, obviously we have sort of a screening process and when we interview folks, you know, we do have a, a several people sort of talk to them and they may come from different disciplines uh, throughout the company so that we can get sort of a holistic uh, uh, perspective on, on who we're talking to. Um, and, but I have found that, you know, when it comes to the idea of core values, you know, we've been really lucky in that respect. I don't really feel like we've had a lot of misses, you know, from a core value perspective. Um, I think when people come in, they sort of believe in what we're doing and they're kind of aligned with the way we think. Um, and, it, that, and from that perspective, I think it's usually worked out. It's usually hitting. So um, I've always believed that a leader's job is to grow people. You know, our job is to um, to raise them up, grow their skill set, grow their confidence, grow their skill set, grow their confidence. And they kind of, I think they almost ladder up. Like they almost, as you as you take them up a rung on, on confidence, they grow on their confidence, right? You just kind of keep going up the ladder. Do you guys have any systems internally or do you do anything um, yourself with your team? And are there any core areas that you're working on growing the skills of people more than others? Yeah, absolutely. This is actually a, a pretty large initiative for us, especially sort of at, at, at the stage that we're at. Uh, and so we really, you know, our CEO, I think, is really the, is really the driver behind this to his undying credit. Um, you know, he has said to me on a personal level, and I think it sort of manifests itself professionally, that, you know, he likes to leave people better than he found them. Um, and, and we have that, that same approach professionally. And I think what we're, we're really starting to do is um, uh, try to work with employees about what their career goals are, and then to the maximum extent possible that we can support them in that, um, then we're doing that. Now, you know, from a process standpoint, we're sort of improving our training and our onboarding. Um, and we set up our, uh, uh, we set up various concentrations within the company to have kind of natural levels of, of uh, growth uh, and, and, and perspective advancement. Um, whereas before, you know, when we were working perhaps in a little bit more loose way, that wasn't as tightly defined. Um, you know, I think that we're, we're trying to uh, really improve the internal training um, that we're trying to provide, whether that's on the technical side or on the, on the sales side on a periodic basis beyond the onboarding. Um, and then I think whenever we're able to support, uh, you know, a, an employee who has a, who wants to attend a particular function or uh, a short class or maybe even a conference that is not only going to redound to their success within the company, but is also going to benefit them from a personal growth perspective. When we are able to do that, I think that we, we do make every effort to. Um, we're just simply not at the stage where, you know, we can, we can say, hey, we're going we're gonna to send 20 people to graduate school this year and this sort of thing. But I think right. what we're, what, the things that we are doing greatly outsize, you know, what, what, what is really hard for a company to do these days. Um, and I think that our, our employee base has, has responded pretty positively to that. That's cool. Yes, I was um, talking to the CEO again that I coached the other day or to one of his team. And I didn't realize this. They've gone from um, around 5 million to 20 million in two years. They're going to do 40 million next year. Really rapid, rapid growth phase. phase. And he, um, they're at about 200-ish employees right now. And his second in command asked, or his CFO asked what the budget was for 2019 for people development and for training. And he said, there is none. She goes, no, no, we need a budget. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, there's no cap. And she goes, well, there has to be. She goes, there has to be a cap. He goes, nope. He goes, if everybody wants to spend their entire year getting trained on stuff, let's do it. 
because the more I grow them, the more they're going to grow the company. And she goes, well, that's crazy. What if 20 people want to go to Tony Robbins? He goes, awesome. We'll put them on the company jet and we'll fly them all down there. And I've like, I've never heard. And he wasn't kidding. He's, yeah. he's literally, he's literally decided that he is going full on all out on growing his people. And I don't think I've ever heard a commitment to that level where he's got people, his second in command is in the CEO Alliance. He actually sent eight people to a Tony Robbins event. He's in a couple of coaching programs. It's like, you guys really, really ramping up the training. It's pretty cool. Well, I think that's what, you know, we should all aspire to. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm definitely envious of, uh, of his position to, um, to sort of be able to do that with that kind of confidence. And, you know, I would, I would love to be able to, to, to be a part of us growing that way. Um, but I think, you know, for companies that maybe have some resource constraints in that, in that respect, <laughs> or um, there's, a of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of ways to be creative with that. Um, and, yeah. and authentic at the same time, and, and that's really what we're, we're, we're putting a lot of time and effort into. Well, it's interesting. Like I, I was talking to a, um, another CEO recently at lunch and I was just saying that we, I don't think we spend enough time training our people on the core parts of their role that they do every day. We spend a lot of time teaching them about the company itself and our product and our service and maybe how to run our software, but we don't teach them how to interview people. We don't teach them how to coach people. We don't teach them how to delegate or do time management or project management, like all the soft skills leadership. My gut is that you pulled a lot of those skills out of the military and you carry them with you today. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's the case. I mean, um, you know, I would, I would much rather, I would much rather hire someone, uh, that I had a high that, that my assessment was really high, that those soft skills were what they were bringing to the table. Um, then, then worry about whether or not, uh, we're going to be able to train a lot on that. I just think that that, that's a hard thing to train on. And it just goes to, you know, the, the concept of experience and, and, and how, important that is for, for certain, um, for certain hirings within a company. Um, I think that we can work a lot with that for, for employees that are coming in and maybe a little bit of a younger stage. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so I just think that there are a lot of opportunities to, to help people along with those, with those, um, sort of soft, soft skills. I do think it takes a little bit of, of forthrightness and maybe even, um, you know, maybe even just, uh, just a real commitment to tell people, in a very politic and positive way, sort of what the observations are. Um, you know, we all got to have some thick skin. And so if, if you see at a time when maybe a soft skill isn't being employed as effectively um, as it could be, uh, then, you know, I think it is incumbent on, you know, the manager or the leader in that, in that respect to, to be honest with the employee, uh, but to do so in a positive way that sort of you know, re-motivates them and re-recruits them to yeah. the overall mission that they're a part of. Uh, I mean, that's really the way that it has to be done. But to ignore it and pretend like it isn't there certainly doesn't help the employee grow uh, no. and, you know, probably has, you know, maybe some longer range, range problems if, if, if uh, course correction takes too long to, to sort of manifest itself. Yeah, it's a disservice to everybody. So one of the, one of the things that, that seems to be really popular these days, especially in social media, is just the idea of being vulnerable and, and leaders being more open and vulnerable and um, and there's almost a, a blurred line between our personal lives and our business lines. So I'd love to get some thoughts from you around, around that and leadership in this day of vulnerability and being open and um, kind of being a complete open books with our thoughts and feelings and also with your personal life as it relates to the business. How do you, how do you deal with all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting question, Cameron. I mean, I think that uh, one of my shortfalls in the soft skills has probably been sort of maybe empathy uh, and, um, 
you know, my, you know, some of some of the people I, I, whose opinions I really care about have taken a little time to to talk to me about that. And I don't mean empathy in the sense that I I don't care because of course I do. I suppose that it's not as easy to maybe see from you know my the look on my face or or my actions at a given time, you know, that I'm sort of expressing it uh, as as much as 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 maybe I should. And so, you know, <laughs> for the sake of being vulnerable, you know, in this capacity. Um, I think that that's something I personally have, have had to work on. I really do think that it goes a long way with employees. I think it goes a long way with friends and family members um, when we can sort of let our guard down and be honest about ourselves a little bit. Um, it's certainly not the natural inclination for a lot of people. Certainly for me, maybe that's a function of my background and just where I came from. Um, but you know, to the extent that um, it's authentic uh, and that it's 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 at an appropriate time. Um, I think that people sort of appreciate, uh, you know, that, that level of, of introspective honesty um, mm-hmm. and, and the humanity that's there. Uh, and, and so I, I do think it goes a long way. On, on, I suppose on a, on a personal side, um, you know, I could probably go a lot more towards that, you know, at, at home. Um, you know, I have, I have two kids, beautiful daughter and a, and, and a fantastic son. And, you know, my daughter's in high school and my son's in middle school and, um, you know, I can be sort of a very, uh, I, I can be sort of one minded in certain ways, like in all seriousness, like we just need to get this done or, um, this is the time to, 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 to do this. And as they get older, they just really have these new ideas and, and it's taken me some, some cycles to, to figure out the importance of, of expressing the same flexibility at home that I demand of people when I'm at work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's man. I wish there was a manual for being a, a dad, right? <laughs> Without question, Without question. <laughs> running a business is so darn easy. I said that to one of my kids the other day. I've got two boys that are seventeen and fifteen. I'm like, you know what? Being a dad is really freaking hard, man. Because running a company is so simple compared to raising you two. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I can't do it. I don't think I can ever do it right. And then when I'm doing it right, I think I can always do it better too. So, all right. How about one one final um, or one final parting gift? Like, if you were to to really have wished that you knew something at a younger age, what would it be that you could tell yourself, um, you know, the 21 year old Eric, if you could tell the 21 year old Eric something in leadership that you now know to be true, but you wish you'd known earlier on, what would it be? Um, you know, I think I, I might focus that in a little bit on what young Eric would tell COO Eric and not necessarily just uh, Eric uh, in, in sort of the professional sense in, in general. Um, I think that, you know, when I wasn't the COO, I can think of a lot of times when I would bring a problem to the COO or I'd bring a solution to the COO who I've greatly respected. And, you know, when we moved out on my solution because the, C- the COO endorsed it, like I, that, 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 I felt validated um, because, mm-hmm. you know, the COO knows what he's doing. And so now I'm the COO and people bring things to me. Uh, and there are times when um, I think there's probably some sort of just uh, assumption or expectation that I kind of know what I'm doing. Uh, and, you know, sometimes if there's an issue that the CEO or the president really aren't, you know, all that involved in, then the answer that I'm given, the guidance or the signature or whatever, is really the answer for the company. Uh, and so I think that that's been a humbling experience for me. And it's led me to the conclusion that you know, if you take the Truman mantra that the buck stops here, that's really like the CEO's kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of maxim going forward. I think the COO's maxim is that the uncertainty stops here, uh, because the value I feel like I've I've, I've tried to bring um, and that I've seen uh, other COOs do really well is they take 
the uncertainty that comes from kind of an amorphous and uncertain conversation and really sort of teases out the decision points, you know, establishes some taskings and then is sort of relentless in, in bringing that uncertainty into something actionable for the company. Um, and so I think that if I had to give advice to anyone who was eventually going to going to try to go the route of being a COO, it would be that be prepared to turn on certainty into action. Mm. I love I love the wrap up. I also love the first one that you gave us, which was the inspect what you expect. I mean, that's a, a mantra that I've used for years as well that I used to just um, and it wasn't because people were not delivering. It was just because often I didn't deliver the I didn't delegate as well as I clear, clearly could have or people just got busy, too. So. Sure. Um, Eric Bowen, Chief Operating Officer from Babel. I really appreciate you, or Babel Street. I really appreciate you spending the time with us today and giving us some of these insights and getting to know you a little bit. So thank you very much for all this time. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a, have a great session coming up with the, uh, with the Alliance. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it, Eric. See ya. Bye now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.